Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. I know what it's like to be at rock bottom. I know what it's like to be damaged by benzos. And I know that it's possible to come through the other side. And I think for me personally, having the purpose of getting to do that, being able to do that for other people absolutely enriches my life. I mean, it's those purposes are everything to me today. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef with Daring. It's my pleasure to have Dan here today. Uh, Dan uh, suffered from protracted withdrawal injury from benzodiazepines. Uh, he's now recovered and he's uh, recently started doing coaching. He's very kindly agreed to come on and, and talk about his story with benzodiazepines and his journey. So, Dan, you know, welcome. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on and, and do this. I always think a good place to start is if, you know, it's kind of like at the beginning, you know, how, how did you end up on benzodiazepines in the first place? What was kind of going on? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for yeah. having me on. And thank you for asking. Um, so my first psychiatrist was a dishwasher at the restaurant that I worked at when I was about 21. Yeah. <laughs> so this was probably back around 2002, 2003 era. Um so I started taking them and I realized right off the bat that these drugs were powerful mm-hmm. because they alleviated my anxiety so well and so thoroughly. I'd never experienced anything else like that. So I knew that there was something to these drugs right away. And after doing that for a while, I went to my GP. And well, I asked, let me ask you this. Was he just like, hey, man, I got some Xanax. Do you want to try it? Or were you just like, oh, could he see that you were stressed? Or was he just like, hey, just take these. Like, maybe they're fun to fool around with. Like, what? Like, how, like, how did that happen? Yeah. Oh, no, he just he just had some prescriptions sitting out that he would just kind of let everybody in the restaurant see so that we knew that he had stuff, you know, and there were some people like myself who were you know, prone to ask like, Hey, what is that? You know, what do you got there? Yeah. Cause I knew he had other stuff too. Cause I also liked opiates quite a bit and he had yeah. those. So mm-hmm. I was into opiates prior to ever trying a benzodiazepine. Mm-hmm. But when I, when I saw that and, you know, I said, I don't know what, it, what it was. It was, uh, it was either Alprazolam or Ativan, one of those two. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I've not, I, I've heard of it, but I didn't know what it does. So I was very curious about it when I saw that he had those. Yeah. And we so have been asking any- about them. And were you having any problems with addiction or anything? Or is this just kind of like experimenting with different drugs? Like, this is kind of fun. I like this, you know, just when you're out. Or was it was any of that stuff a problem kind of when you guys crossed paths? Oh, I was definitely I was definitely down the road of addiction quite a few years by this point. I think I was, mm-hmm. you know, 21, 22 about. And I had already been, you know, I'd had problems with alcohol, opiates, marijuana, um, and I was just getting into pills around this time, cocaine, you know, eventually mm-hmm. I would go try heroin and some other stuff, pretty much anything that would come along. So I was mm-hmm. already kind of there by that point. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah so. Yeah, so walk, walk us forward from there. You, you, you kind of get a taste of this, um, of benzodiazepines. You, you like what you experience. And then I guess shortly thereafter you go to the GP and, um, yeah, take, take us from there. Yeah, sure. So. Um, after buying them from my dishwasher for a while, mm. I go to my GP and I kind of just played dumb. I said, you know, I'm really struggling with anxiety, with sleep, um, depression. And, you know, can you recommend anything to help me out? Um, and I had already been on an antidepressant by this point since I was 17 or 18, by the way. 
So mm -hmm. that was actually my first prescription I ever tried. Um, but, you know, you say the right words and the doctor's like, oh, yeah, you know, well, we have this drug, Alprazolam. I'm like, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Never heard uh, of that before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so gave me, I think, 0.5 milligrams mm -hmm. of Alprazolam to take twice a day. And so that kind of started out. And then I did start taking it as prescribed when I got it from him because mm -hmm. I, I did notice that it had a therapeutic effect that I liked and it helped me cut down on my drinking. Mm -hmm. So those, those two things kind of went hand in hand for me. I figured if I could get on this medication and it would help cut my drinking down and I could function better, you know, I could live a better life. And that's kind of, that's kind of how I got started going down the doctor route. Okay. And, um, and so how long did that go on where it was kind of just this period of stability with the, with the Xanax until you kind of ended up in trouble? So it, that was quite a few years. From when I first started taking it from my GP, I'd say I went from 2003 to 2009 mm -hmm. and I was taking it consistently and without much issue at all. And then all of a sudden something happened in 2009 where it just stopped working and it was almost like overnight. It was so fast mm -hmm. and I was in college at this point. Um, I was getting my bachelor's degree. And I was just about a year off from getting that. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm, I had these debilitating panic attacks, um, crippling depression felt horrible. And I knew what was going on. Cause it, you know, I'd been taking them for a while. I, you know, I experimented with them before taking them from my doctor. So I knew that they stopped working mm -hmm. and I knew that I had to either up my dose or come off of them. And I, I couldn't just stop taking them. I mean, I, if I would skip a dose, I would be in like sheer terror, panic, sweating, confusion, derealization, depersonalization. So I was, I felt like I was screwed. I was like caught between a rock and a hard place. Like, what do I do? Um, so I ended up going to a psychiatrist at the university I was attending and she just said, well, you just need more. You just need to up your dose. Like it was as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, yeah, I, I know, I, I know that would like help me in the interim, but I know I'm also thinking about years down the road. Like, what do I do? Am I just going to have to keep upping my dose, you know, ad infinitum until eternity until I'm, you know, an old man. Like, I don't want to mm -hmm. do that. Um, but I was desperate. I didn't know what else to do. Um, and so she gave me Xanax XR mm -hmm. and I started taking that and it helped. And I took that for, I don't know, a few months. Then I was like, I don't really like this one. It's not working. She switched me to Ativan, which started working better. And then I took that for a few years and then that stopped working. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh crap. Now I've been on these things for 10 years and now, now I don't know what to do. I had a daughter. I had a teaching job. Um, and I had a lot to lose. And once the Ativan stopped working, I got really scared because I thought, you know, what am I going to do? My life is about to fall apart. I can't hold it together. My mental stability is completely slipping. My opiate addiction was spiraling out of control. And I was just going downhill fast. <laughs> so I went to a new psychiatrist and he prescribed me clonopin, I think two milligrams a day. And when I started taking the clonopin, I noticed that it kind of smoothed out. It kind of, it kind of eased up a little bit. 
And I did that for about another year. And eventually I got to a place where I was like, listen, I have to do something about this opiate addiction. I know there's a drug called Suboxone. And he refers me to another doctor in his practice who prescribes Suboxone. So I go to him and he gives me Suboxone and also upped my Clonopin from two milligrams a day to five milligrams a day. Gave me <laughs> a prescription called Vivance, which is a stimulant oh on top of Jesus that. Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah. 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 Right. What was the Vivance uh, for? Just for like the amount of clonopin you were on? I don't. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, oh man, this is. Yeah. I, I sometimes. I mean, obviously, for an ADHD indication, I imagine you told them you're having difficulty concentrating at the time. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Actually, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I walked in and he looked at me and he goes, "Do you ever get tired at work?" And I said, uh, well, yeah, sometimes. And he literally said, this drug kicks ass. And then he took out <laughs> his pencil and his notebook and he started writing me a prescription for, I didn't even know what at the time, yeah. but that's, that's literally what happened. That's literally what he said. And of course me being me at the time, I wasn't going to say no to him. You know, I was just, like, Oh, another drug. Yeah. Throw another pill in the mix, whatever. What do I care? I mean, you got like the kind of the trifecta that everyone wants from their psychiatrist. You came out with like, you know, Suboxone, you know, five milligrams of Clonopin and Vivance. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I did. I thought I struck gold at the time. Yeah. I really did. <laughs> yeah. And of course, looking back on it, I mean, I just, I went completely sideways. Um, I was also taking Pristique. I was also taking uh, Propranolol. Mm. And so, anyways, now I'm on this huge cocktail of drugs and, um, you know, I, I'm just coming unglued. I mean, I can't think straight. I'm, you know, I'm having all these debilitating, you know, physical symptoms. I'm, I'm getting sick all the time. I'm getting these weird sores on my body. I'm, I was getting, um, optical, uh, oh, what are those called? Uh, an optical, uh, I forget what it was. It was kind of like where my, I would, an optical seizure, I think is what it's called. Interesting. Okay. It could, could be wrong, but it was what, really what is what, what is that? Cause I haven't heard of that one before. What, what were you experiencing? It was, it would happen, um, at nighttime and I would like look, be looking at a light and all of a sudden I would see these like rings start to form around light and they would start to kind of pulse. And I'm like, what is that? It was so strange. And along with that, I would get this overwhelming sense of panic and like I had to run and then my vision was just skewed and everything I looked at looked like it had a halo around it. Wow. And that would last for like five to 10 minutes and then it would go away. So guess what I did? I go to my doctor. Actually, I went to a walk-in doctor and he gave me a prescription of Valium to take on top of everything that I was taking. <laughs> so, Why do you think it was so easy for you to get these meds? Because not everyone is able to, to kind of get like, was it like where you were living? Did you just like present really well? Like how, how did you like, like, you know, I guess right. I'm surprised that, you know, or maybe it was just back then at that time, you know? Right. That's yeah. a good question. Um, for one, I was in Florida yeah. and I think maybe that had something to do with it. Although they had shut a lot of the pain, pain clinics down, down mm -hmm. there at that time, there were still a lot of places. I don't know. I would just go in and it, I felt like maybe it was the addict in me who, you know, loved to manipulate people at mm -hmm. the time, you know, and was less than forthright. I think I kind of knew the right keywords to say, Although I don't know, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit. Maybe I, maybe it was just dumb luck and I was just walking into places and 
Yeah. I was getting it so easily. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the, the interesting thing during all of this is, I mean, there's there's like two stories here for me, which uh, are kind of running in parallel. I'm obviously interested about the benzos and, the, uh, and eventually the protracted withdrawal injury, but the other story is one of addiction. And so there's addiction kind of going on at the same time. On top of that, like somehow through all of this, you've, you've, you've gotten a BA and then you have a teaching job and it sounds like you started like a family as well. Like were you right. like, so, so fill in some of the gaps for me. So what, 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 so when you, when you were struggling with your opiate addiction, was it, was it pain pills? Was it heroin? Was, I mean, was this a daily thing? Was this experimenting? Like what, what was the story of that, you know, kind of juxtaposed next to all of this going on? Yeah. Good question. Um, yeah. so I experimented with heroin, um, and any opiate that I could get my hands on when I was more in my early 20s. And then as I got older, went back to the college, got my degree, settled down, got married, had a kid, had a family, uh, went into teaching. I didn't, you know, want to run the streets and, and, you know, get heroin from dealers and stuff. So, um, I just went the pain pill route. Mm-hmm. And that was something again, you know, to your, to your point before, it was so strange because, um, I was always finding a way, whether it was through a dentist. Um, one time I broke my finger and I got pain pills for over a year just from that one broken finger. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always trying to con doctors, scheme, lie, you know, manipulate to try to get what I needed. And I consistently found a way to get what I needed. Wow. So it was pain pills. It was pain pills most of the time that was kind of running concurrent. Yeah. To, to my whole other addiction that was going on. Yeah. How, how did all of this like kind of fit in with, I guess, your married life? I, I mean, I don't know if you mind me kind of asking about that. Was, yeah. was this something that your, that your wife was worried about or was it, you know, just, I, I don't know, like how, how did, how did all of this kind of being on all of the meds and the, the pain pills, how did that fit into that relationship? It was horrible. <laughs> it was okay. absolutely awful. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, me being who I was at the time, Um, I was always having to hide my addiction because I was so ashamed of it. And, uh, I, I hid it from my wife. I hid it from my family. Um, I had a lot of shame. I had a lot of guilt over what I was doing and I, I I just couldn't find the means to stop. And I was really trying. I mean, I was trying, I was reading books. I was trying to meditate. I was trying to do anything that I could to stop. And I just couldn't for any length of time. I mean, I would maybe stop for a week or two. Yeah. And then, you know, something would happen and I would be right back doing it. And so it made, it made my, my relationships an absolute mess. It made my, my job a mess with my employer. Um, I felt horrible. I felt horrible about what I was doing. I felt, you know, terrible that I was a, I was a teacher and I had, you know, kids to look after every single day. Um, and I knew what I was doing, you know, nobody else knew, but I knew. Yeah. And it made me feel awful. So, yeah, it took a toll on everything. It it just about ended my marriage. It ended relationships. It ended jobs. So, so it left so a it big did, trail of disaster. And you, so your marriage lasted through all of this. It, it sounds like yes. Okay. Yes, wow. How long? Today's how long have you been? My, yeah, I was going to ask yeah, you no. what what anniversary <laughs> is it? Yeah. Today actually is my thirteenth anniversary. Okay. So it it lasted somehow. I'm so grateful. Yeah. I'm so grateful. You know. Yeah. 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 Wow. Okay. Incredible. And, and you just had the one kid or do you have another? I had another. Um, so I had my daughter when, uh, in 2011 and I just had a son, uh, he'll turn four next month. Holy. Okay. All right. Wow. All right. And so, 
I mean, how was this, like, what was the impact of kind of the addiction with, with the opiates and the pain pills when you were uh, a teacher, you know, and all, all of those things? How was that like playing out on the day to day? Oh man, it was bad. <laughs> it was, I was just barely trying to hold life together by a thread. And, you know, the times when I had the pills and, I, you know, I would have enough to get me through, I could kind of coast just enough just to get by, you know, and fake it just enough to, to do the bare minimum to keep my job, to, to teach the lessons and, and do what I needed to do. But then, of course, you know, as any opiate addict will know, there always comes a time when you just you can't get any and, and you're looking to, you know, on a Friday you run out. And you got to be back at work on Monday and you're like, oh my God, this is going to be horrible. So there were <laughs> yeah. many days when I was, I was sweating. I had the chills, you know, and it looked like I just kept getting the flu every couple months. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I was detoxing in Gee. class. So it was, it was terrible. How <laughs> was distracting. Awful. Yeah. I mean, that sounds, I mean, that sounds, that sounds horrible. And, and, um, I mean, there's so many threads here, but I'm just going to jump on it because I'm naturally curious about it. Looking back on your life, what primed you to kind of walk down this path? You know, I'm, I'm sure it's something you've talked about now that you're so kind of doing more of the coaching work. How do you, how do you make sense of like how, how you were primed to kind of fall into this? How I kind of, maybe how I fell into addiction. Like, yeah, and fell yeah. Into, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I've thought about it a whole lot. Yeah. I think, you know, nature and nurture both play into this. Um, I know, you know, addiction, they call it a family disease. Um, I, there's things in my past that uh, I just did not process. Traumas that I had unprocessed that I did not know how to deal with mm -hmm. that came out emotionally and even through all the psychological work that I, that I did with people, you know, very good psychologists that I had too, uh, mm -hmm. very well trained, very reputable. Um, I just, I couldn't shake something inside of me. That's the best way I can describe it. There was, there was still always this like leftover piece of some emotional turmoil that still felt like it, I couldn't get it out of me. It was still theirs. And yeah, and I, Thankfully, you know, throughout the last eight years have found ways to deal with that too. And so it wasn't like you had an injury or anything like that. And then you started taking opiates that way. It was more like there was psychological pain and using these medications and these different drugs was like soothing for that. Is that kind of more what it was like? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I wish I could say I had a concussion or something and blame it on that. But no, yeah. it was, it was completely emotional for me. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, okay. And so, 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 so take us back Thing, things. So we're going back to what year is it now when, when you, you're on that, on the drug that kicks ass and things are unraveling? When, when, when is that? <laughs> so that would be 2000, the, uh, end of 2014 okay. is when I started that cocktail. Okay. So walk us forward from then. Things are unraveling. You're on a lot of stuff at the time. Let's, yeah. let's go forward from there. Sure. Yeah. That's when, that's when I really started to become unglued because I was taking Suboxone. So I wasn't taking opiates any longer because as I'm sure you know, that it blocks the, the craving aspect mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. wanting to take opiates. However, I wasn't getting the therapeutic effects that I was finding in opiates. So I was 
also emotionally coming unraveled too. So I'm taking, a, you know, five milligrams of benzos of, of clonopin a day, uh, more suboxone than I need all these other drugs. And I, I just went downhill fast. I mean, the, the job, I was working a menial job. They didn't want me there any longer because I was, I started to go into uh, mental health facilities and just, you know, zonk out for like a week or two at a time. I would just check myself in and just sit there in my robe and like watch TV for a week or two. Um, mm-hmm. I just was finding it increasingly difficult to deal with life. I just couldn't do it anymore. I was starting to check out. I was starting to have suicidal ideations. Um, and I just wanted out. I was just, I was done. I was emotionally done. Uh, you know, but at the same time I had a wife and I had, you know, a beautiful daughter that I wanted to stick around for. Um, so it was absolutely miserable. And around 2015 in the spring, my family approached me and said, you know, I think you need some help. You know, would you be willing to go to a treatment center? And I said, uh, at first, no. And then they kind of said, well, you know, I think it would be a good idea. You can get off these drugs, get off all the medications, you know, you can get back down to see what your baseline is. And finally, I was just so tired. I was just so sick of everything. Um, the place online said it had a pool that enticed me. I was like, cool, I'll just go, you know, hang out for like 30 days and go swimming. Turns out the place didn't have a pool. So they did a bait and switch, (laughs) but I I decided to go. And, um, that's when, uh, that's when the story gets uh, a little bit more interesting as far as, let me ask you this because like at that point it was really obvious to your family. That's just like, and, and I know you probably got wrecked at that treatment facility, but but like being in that place where th- this is more of an addiction type of thing where your family is just like, man, Dan, we need to get you some help. W- why do you think it was hard for you to see at that time? And you kind of begrudgingly went because oh, maybe I'll hang out at, at a pool. What What's that disconnect like when the people that love you are just like, hey, we got to get Dan help. But you're just like checked out, whatever, like given up. What, what What's that like? That's a good question. Yeah, I you know. Everybody else can see it, but the addict, you know, everybody in my life could see that I was struggling, that I needed help, that I needed to get off these drugs, but I was still kind of kicking and screaming. I was the one still saying, I'm fine. You know, leave me alone. I'm, you know, I got my Suboxone now. I'm not taking opiates anymore. Um, you know, the benzos are, you know, I'm stabilized on them. Yeah. You know, meanwhile, I'm checking myself into mental health facilities. I want to kill myself. My life is in the toilet. I can barely work. But, yeah. you know, I, the, the, the capability and I guess uh, the way I can rationalize things in my head when I'm in addiction is uh, it's absolutely crazy. You know, there's there's <laughs> I have no shortage of, of means of rationalizing something away. And, yeah. you know, so them telling me it still wasn't really getting through. The only reason that I went was because I thought I could kind of check out a life for 30 days. That's yeah. really why I went. Yeah. I really didn't think I needed help. Yeah. Okay. Wow. All right. Yeah. So, so, so carry on. So you, so you go to this place, this facility, is it down in Florida or somewhere else? Yeah. Yep. Down in South Florida. Yeah. The okay. rehab capital of the world down there. Yeah. Okay. So what happens? So I got, uh, I got checked in and, um, I met with a psychiatrist upon arrival who checked, you know, checked me out, looked at all the drugs I was taking. And she said, Oh yeah, you know, we'll keep you comfortable and we can have you off of everything in nine days. And I was, I wouldn't say I was completely naive at the time. I mean, I knew you couldn't just abruptly quit a benzodiazepine. I just, you know, I didn't do any research. I didn't look into a taper. I just 
All I knew was that I was at this place for 30 days. They said they were going to take me off. I questioned whether or not I was going to be okay, but they said, no, it's fine. We'll give you some gabapentin. Uh, we've got other drugs, muscle relaxers. We'll keep you comfortable. You know, you'll be, you'll be fine. You'll be good. And so I just, I just went with it. You know, I didn't know any better. Um, and did they care that you so, were on like, uh, you know, Vivance and Prestige, I think you said, and like some other things, were they just going to clear you out or is it just like, hey, we just care about like the controlled substances, you know, Suboxone, Clonopin and uh, Vivance? I think they, I think they uh, took me off the of Suboxone quicker. I think that was maybe, I don't know, seven or eight days. Um, yeah. But Pretty much they, they took me off of everything. By, by day nine, I was off of everything except the Pristique. They forgot to take me off the Pristique. Okay. They actually left that in, yeah. um, which I was told actually made my uh, detox worse, but I don't know. Because yeah, it's like stimulating, right? And you probably don't need that when you're coming off downers. Oh, God. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's the last, that yeah. was the last thing that I needed for sure. But it was, a, oh God, it was a mess. It was just an absolute mess. Um. If you want me to go into, I can start talking about about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm, in, I'm I'm in, I'm intrigued. Yeah. How how do you can you can you explain what that hell was like? I can I can try to do my best. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh. It's you know a lot of it's foggy, but you know on day nine, I think I still felt okay after 24 hours after coming off of it. And then I think it was somewhere after 24 hours. I remember they had us, they had you go to groups in treatment, you know, and they would kind of give you structure throughout the day. You go to one group, they shuffle you off to another group, another group. And I got to my second or third group of the morning, I think after being off this now for over 24 hours off of everything. And, uh, I just felt the worst panic, dread holy crap, I'm going to die feeling I've ever felt in my life just come over me. And I just said to myself, oh, this is not good. This, this is bad. Whatever is happening right now is bad. Uh, I felt it in my brain, in my body. And uh, from there, I just started to, to descend pretty fast after that, where um, the next conscious thought I have is being in this, uh, we had like three beds to a room and my bed was all the way against the wall. Um, and I had my hoodie pulled up over my head and I was staring at this brick wall next to me, just rocking back and forth, sweating, shaking because I was coming off of Suboxone at the same time. So I'm also sick. Wow. I'm, you know, having to run to the bathroom about every 20 minutes and, and, and I'm psychologically, I was out of my mind. So I, I was losing touch with reality fast in, in the sense that. I was, I was really going into psychosis where I, I forgot where I was at, what I was doing, what was happening. And all I knew was that I was sick in this place. Sounds hurt my head. Um, I wanted to die. I felt like I was in hell. The anxiety was through the roof. My heart was pounding in my chest. I couldn't make sense of left or right, up or down. Um, I would go into the shower to just try to get a little bit of relief and the shower, you know, the water felt like pins and needles hitting my body. It was so painful. Um, and then I would just get out of the shower and I would lean over the toilet and just start crying and, you know, sobbing and asking God to please save me from this because I don't know what to do. I couldn't even hardly get words out. I mean, you know, the speech was almost completely 
erased from me at that point. It was so hard. I, I, I just, I didn't know what to do, where to go. What, what the hell do I do? Um, so how long was how long did you make it there before they kicked you out? You know, because I imagine like if you were that bad, I mean, I'm, I'm sure someone probably eventually realized they're like, hey, Dan is really like not doing well. Like, oh my god, you would think so, right? Yeah, yeah no. I mean, for three days, nobody even checked on me, Joseph. Nobody. Okay. I mean, yeah. I was just sitting there writhing, and uh, you know, and my roommates were like, holy crap, you know, you need help. I had to go across the hall after I think it was on day three and I had to talk to one of the doctors and I, I threatened suicide. Basically. I told him I was going to kill myself, mm. which I was really thinking about doing. And I was quite serious about it. Um, so then they, sh- you know, shipped me off to the hospital. They gave me some IV fluids. Uh, they kept me for a while for observation and sent me back. Uh, so they, they, was, they, didn't, they didn't put you back on any benzodiazepines. They didn't slow it down. They didn't say, Hey, okay. Okay. So they, they send you back. They just sent me back and I was begging them. I was like, yeah. look, you guys took me off way too. I know that much now. Five milligrams like, of clonopin. Good God, man. Jesus. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. After taking benzos for 13 years too. So yeah. I was on them a long time. Yeah. And the five milligrams was a huge dose. Um, but no, I was asking him, I was saying, please, you know, please get me back on these meds and give me a slower taper so that I can function. Cause I can't function. Um, so they sent me back to another hospital after, um, uh, I don't know, I came back. It's so it's foggy, but I know I went to hospital visit number two. Um, they Baker acted me that time probably because, you know, the suicide threats that I was making brought me back to the hospital, kept me there overnight. And that's when I, I went into the deepest psychosis, sleeping, tr- well, not sleeping, but I was in my bed at the psych ward overnight. Um, yeah. That's a whole other story. So you, you went into full on like, um, essentially like DTs. I mean, delirium tremens from like um, benzodiazepines. And this, I mean, this is you know, maybe more for the audience, it sounds like you know what this is, but sometimes when people come off alcohol really quickly, they become acutely psychotic and they hallucinate and they essentially lose all touch with reality. And, and shortly after that, they usually die if it's not treated. They, they develop a seizure and it, you know, if the seizure doesn't stop, they go into cardio pulmonary arrest, they stop breathing and they die. And, and that can happen with benzodiazepines. It's the only two drugs that can kill you when you detox. And so you're really on your way there. And the other comment I just want to make, just you know, for those out there who don't know how much five milligrams of clonopin is, it's 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 a one milligram of clonopin is essentially two of Ativan. When someone comes into an emergency room who is n- someone who is naive on benzodiazepines, and you need to acutely sedate them because they're like tearing the place up and throwing things around, they give you two of Ativan, and so you you're at the point where you were getting like a dose that we would use to take down like someone in mania who was like agitated, you were getting that five times a day and they pulled you off that, uh, you know, in, in, in nine months. So it doesn't surprise me that you essentially went into psychosis, but yeah, like what, what happened after that? I mean, tell us about the psychosis. What do you remember? And then what happened? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, I remember getting to the psych ward. I remember them having me take off all my clothes. They gave me the gown. Um, and I was trying to call my sister to get me out of there. Like my plan was to escape. I just said, I've got to get out of here, but I couldn't remember her phone number and I couldn't dial the phone. I just, I couldn't make my mind do, I didn't have the capacity intellectually to make that happen. So I just said, okay, I'm here. There's nothing else I can do. 
you know, I'm, I came from the treatment center. I'm at the psych ward. I can't get out of here. I'm locked in here. They're going to keep me here. Um, and I just have to ride it out for however long I'm in here now. Um, so that night I'm in my room, I'm in there with another guy and he's sleeping in the bed across from me. And, uh, the psychosis was just raging. I mean, I was hallucinating. I was hearing things that weren't there, like disembodied voices. Um, again, I'm still sick from coming off the Suboxone. So I'm still having to go to the bathroom, you know, every 15, 20, 30 minutes. Um, so I'm physically absolutely sick from that. Um, the, the, the images that were like going through my head, the intrusive thoughts, the psychosis, it was just, I was absolutely insane. Like I was out of my mind. And the best way I can describe it is that it felt like every insane person that had ever slept in that psych ward, like their psyche was jumping into mine oh my God. and messing with my head. And yeah. I thought that was it. I thought I was going to lose it. And during this time, the doctors from the treatment center uh, called my wife and said that I had a 50-50 shot of coming out of the, psych the psychosis that I was in. Um, and so she's at which, home freaking out. Which they had caused, by the way. You know, you didn't have the psychosis right, before right. you went there. Yeah, Just just yeah, so you exactly. know, we've got your husband in a state where he has a 50-50% chance of ever regaining his sanity. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, we're taking good care of him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, but something interesting did happen to me that night where um, in the midst of all the chaos that was going on, the psychosis, um, the insanity, I have what I can only describe as a spiritual experience where I just, I completely, I, I don't, I, it's hard to describe, but I feel like I gave up trying to control any of how this was going to turn out. And I just said, I can't, I can't do this. I am obviously in, in a place where I'm completely at the mercy of anything and everyone around me. And, and I, I can't even, you know, advocate for myself at this point. Um, and I felt something come into me, go through me and happen within me that showed me like, it, it's going to be okay. Just go back to the treatment center when they send you back, go through the process and you're going to be okay. It doesn't mean I felt better all of a sudden, you know, the symptoms went away, but that was very powerful. That, uh, and I do remember that very, very specifically. Were you, um, uh, were you religious uh, kind of through all of this or was, you know, was religion, God, I'm going to assume Christianity. I don't know, just because it's Florida. I don't, I don't know. What, like what, <laughs> like what, um, yeah, what was, yeah. Um, what was your, your previous history with uh, religion and everything like that leading up to this? Yeah. So I, I grew up Christian in a Christian yeah. household, but I kind of, I walked away from that when I was probably 16 or 17 years old uh, and never really looked back on it and was, I was definitely not religious when this happened. Okay. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't have any concept of a higher power. I wasn't against it. I was probably just what you would call agnostic. Okay. I just did, you know, didn't really care one way or the other. So what did you think was happening to you when you had this like experience? Like, was it, was it God? Was it like, what, like, what, what, like, how did you understand it? At the time, um, you know, I don't know if I thought that it was God or what it was. I think shortly afterwards, I, I figured that it was God, um, whatever God is, you know, yeah, sure. um, I, I don't define what God is, but shortly thereafter, 
Um, I did talk about it with some of the spiritual counselors at the treatment center, and I started kind of beginning to integrate that experience into my life. And now I, I definitely do call it a higher power or God or something working in my life at that moment when I needed something badly. I mean, I was so desperate and I was just at my wits end. I mean, I was rock bottom. If there was a rock bottom in my life, I mean, that was it. And something happened to help propel me forward, to help carry me through that experience. But it was a process of integrating that experience. I don't know if I could have called it God at that moment. I just knew that something internally was happening and did happen. Okay. So walk us forward from, from, so I guess, I mean, did they, I mean, did they put you back on some benzos when you were like hallucinating or did they just let you just like ride it out, you know? They did actually. Yeah. They, they, uh, they gave me some Ativan when I first came into the, into the psych ward. I think they gave me one dose maybe though. Okay. You know, just, just maybe enough to take the edge off a tiny bit for a couple hours. So like enough that you you wouldn't have like a seizure and then that was probably, and then you just kind of rode the rest out and until it settled. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. So walk us forward from there. What happened? What happened after you left the inpatient setting? Yeah. So they sent me back to the treatment center after that. I think I was only there overnight because there was a tropical storm coming in and they knew they were going to get an influx of people off the streets. And, you know, they just like, okay, this guy can go back to his treatment center. He's stabilized or whatever, you know, (laughs) psychotically stabilized. We'll send him out. (laughs) Um, So I just went back to my treatment center and I, you know, that was probably the big, beginning of September or the end of August in 2015. And I stay there for another four weeks. Um, and slowly it was, Oh my God. I mean, it was torture. It was absolute torture. Um, they, they gave me the gabapentin, I think 1400 milligrams a day. They kept me on the propranolol. They tried to put me back on an antidepressant and I just said, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm not taking any other meds except, you know, these two that are going to maybe help save my life mm-hmm. and give me a fighting chance going forward. Um, so I, I just clawed and fought my way. And over the next four weeks, I really did. I want to use the word miraculous, but really, I mean, I started to very slowly get incrementally better each week. Um, I attribute part of that to the gabapentin. I mean, if it wasn't for that, I really, I don't think I would have made it. I, mm-hmm. I think I would have, I, I just couldn't have done it. So I, I know that it helped me at least get my head above water so that I could breathe. Um, and I got out of there after four weeks. Uh, I went home and I started attending recovery meetings. Um, my wife let me back in the house after a little while. I started to rekindle things and, you know, I stayed away from alcohol. I stayed away from opiates. I stayed away from other drugs. And it was and has been a long upward journey and has not been linear healing, you know, by any means. Um, I had, I still have benzo belly today. Um, that was one of my worst symptoms. And that was the one a doctor told me would actually be the last one to leave. And so far he's right. So, um, so, so what were the, so when you eventually, so you were getting better after the four weeks, but what was the residual that you left the rehab with in terms of the, the protracted type symptoms? Oh yeah. Uh, anxiety was sky high. 
I mean, just off the charts. If somebody would come up behind me and I didn't know they were there and they would just touch me on the back, you know, I would jump. I was extremely jumpy. Uh, I couldn't sleep. Um, I, I just, you know, more than maybe a couple hours a night. I just felt awful in my skin. I felt absolutely awful. Vision issues. I couldn't see straight. My eyes couldn't focus. Intense head pressure that just would not go away. Skin issues. My skin was always dry. Muscle wasting. I could not put on muscle at all. Um, I was really, really skinny and I'm a pretty thin person to begin with. Um, I mean, just a list of symptoms that were really, really, really hard. And the anxiety was just, it was excruciating. I mean, just to walk into a grocery store, I mean, I could barely function. I could barely have a conversation with somebody because, you know, I would just, you know, I would tense up and I couldn't hardly breathe. It was, everything was so overstimulating. Um, sounds were amplified. Um, it's like when I heard sounds, it's like I could feel it in my jaw and my teeth. Um, I mean, luckily the worst of it was definitely behind me, but what I was left with, the residual, made it extremely difficult to live a normal life. Did you have any of the neuropathy? I know sometimes people have that. Sometimes people go through a stint of pacing. Um, any like a neuropathy, I mean like the tingling and the pain and the burning. I, I was wondering if you had any, any of that stuff going on at any point. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely did. Yeah. I, I had it in my lower back really badly, uh, in my legs. Um, it wasn't the worst symptom that I had, but I definitely had it. And I definitely had akathisia for a while where I, I could not sit down to save my life. I mean, I just, I constantly had to keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. I needed constant forward momentum. Uh, and yeah, I, I definitely had nerve pain. I feel like it was the worst in my back. I would get it. At, oh my God. It just, especially in the mornings, mornings were always the worst. That's when I feel like I always had it. Okay. And so what was like, how did things kind of like fall off after 2015 when you, when you get out of this rehab and, Obviously, you're not like psychotic anymore and that's gone. Like, what was the process of like getting through, you know, this state of like insomnia, agoraphobia, you know, pain and all of that? How, how did that play out over the next couple of years? So I got my first job at six months off of everything and uh, it was just by necessity. I mean, I, I had to go back to work and it was... It was scary. It was excruciating. Um, but I, I found a job that I could do that wouldn't cause me too much stress. And um, it was it was so hard. But I think for me, the part of the exposure of doing that, I think, helped me. Um, I was learning to, to take life one day at a time. I was learning a lot in my recovery community from people who had come before me. Not necessarily had come off of benzos. There were very few of those people in my recovery meetings. Um, but just people showing me kind of how to live life and, and get quiet and meditate and, and pray and practice gratitude and do all these things that I was just desperate to try just to see if it worked. And slowly along the way, I found that a lot of these things were working. Also, I was on the gabapentin and I know that that helped me. Um, there was a doctor right before I left the treatment center who um, I was talking to him right before my discharge. And I said, you know, what? I just, I don't want to take anything. I want to be off of all these drugs. I don't want to have to taper this. I'm just going to leave these at the door and put this behind me. And he suggested to me not to do that. He said, you know, stay on these drugs 
as long as you need to and give yourself a softer landing and see how that goes for you. <laughs> and I believe, I believe he was right because yeah. I, uh, uh, six months between six months and a year, I tried to just stop the gabapentin. And of course I couldn't do that either. So that became a process of having to taper off that as well. Yeah. Um, you're probably aware of this 12 step gets a lot of flack in the benzo community because so many people have kind of been forced into it when they, um, I guess they, you know, it's a kind of a different situation taking it as prescribed and all of them, they don't have the addiction background. Was there any like, um, I mean, did you experience any of that with 12 step or was it like a good fit for you? Like, because you had the addiction background, was it kind of compartmentalized? Like you could go to 12 step and talk about like the addiction, but maybe the protracted withdrawal symptoms that, that wasn't something that it dealt with so much. But then also when I hear you talk, it sounds like some of the, just like the general stuff was also helpful for protracted withdrawal. I'd, I'd love to get you kind of download your thoughts on, um, going, going through protracted withdrawal injury with uh, 12 step and that kind of methodology. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a great question too. And I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I, I would hate for anybody to uh, be stigmatized as an addict like me when, when they're absolutely not, you know, most people on benzos and benzo damaged who become damaged by benzos were definitely not addicts. They, they did take it as prescribed. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. Um, but for me, you know, I think just the process that, that people were able to show me on how they got through their addiction and how they found healing by, by, you know, trying to help others by, by meditating, by having this, uh, life of spirituality definitely helped me because it kept me in a good state of mind where otherwise, I could have easily sunk, you know, so many times. I mean, it was hard enough going through benzo withdrawal and going to meetings. Um, but I suspect, you know, if, if for me personally, if I was kind of left on my own to, to deal with a lot of the troubling symptoms and a lot of the thoughts, um, I think I, I, first of all, I don't think I'd be around here today, but, uh, I would have, I think my healing would have taken a lot longer because, they just, uh, they showed me a way to, if nothing else, distract myself <laughs> just by going to meetings. Sometimes distraction is key just to be able to, you know, get out of your head for a little while. I mean, all the troubling symptoms were still there. And I, I had a couple people who had been through benzo withdrawal, um, not to the extent at all that I did, but were familiar enough with it to, to try to help me and talk to me. And, you know, they would be there on the phone with me if I needed to talk to somebody, you know, at midnight and stay on the phone with me for an hour and a half, two hours sometimes when I was just coming apart and I was coming unglued and I'm like, I can't deal with this anymore. It's overwhelming. You know, life is hard enough, but try living life when you're in protracted benzo withdrawal. I mean, it's, it's a real nightmare. Yeah. So I was definitely grateful that, that I had that. Well, it sounds sure. like, I mean, that's, that, I mean, that's a lot of the same stuff that gets, just gets people through in a lot of the online communities. I mean, they kind of team up, they find, they find a buddy, someone that they get along with and, you know, the person, personalities match and they're just kind of there for each other, um, and right. kind of distract them as they, as they get through it. Um, uh, what, what, what job were you doing? What, what job were you able to work while all of this was going on? That's yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I was mixing paint at a hardware store for people. So yeah. people would, you know, come in and take their little color palette off the wall, hand it to me. And luckily all I had to do was take the paint can, open yeah. the lid, put it underneath a machine and then hit the button. It would shoot the paint in, it would mix it and I would give it back to them. Okay. Uh, so it was very simple, but it, it was good because, you know, in retrospect, it got me kind of out a little bit and it got me trying to have a normal conversation with somebody, what was which it, I think was helpful. What was that like trying to do that job while all of this stuff was going on? Like the intense agoraphobia, going to work, like not sleeping, like obviously just feeling terrible. I mean, I don't know if you could like remember what it was like, like walking into that job the first week. Like what? Like, Oh, it was awful. It was terrifying. Yeah. So we would open at like 5 a.m. Yeah. And we would have to... Uh, take all the big lawnmowers, you know, the big tractors and push them out the double doors and line them up outside. And, you know, normally for me, that's not a big deal, but it, I was in such pain. I mean, I remember that being so, so hard, especially in the morning because the symptoms were always worse in the morning. My nerves were always shot, you know, they were just completely fried. So, you know, pushing these things out the door at 5 a.m., getting them all lined up, it was, uh, it sucked. It was really hard. Yeah. It was really hard. And then sometimes just even, you know, mixing paint for people with, uh, like you said, the agoraphobia, um, just the intense anxiety. It was, it was awkward. It was hard. It was, I mean, it was tough. It was tough. Luckily I worked with some guys who were, uh, some, you know, real jokesters. So it was kind of, yeah. it, it lightened it up a little bit, but it was not easy. It definitely was not easy. And so how long, how long were you in that state for before your nervous system was able to re-regulate and, and you could kind of get some physiologic peace? Ooh. It was a slow process. I think at least two years. I'm going to say it was two years before I really started to feel like I was kind of getting back to normal. I mean, it's, it's hard to say because I had a lot of windows that would come and go where I had sometimes an entire day, day and a half where I'd feel okay, but that was always followed up by a really, really bad wave every single time. I mean, I would just get completely smacked the next day after having a window. So I definitely had times, moments of clarity, moments of these windows where I got some relief. Um, I do know that around nine months I turned a corner because... Mm -hmm. Um, everybody that I was talking to in my meetings started to say, you look better. You know, you look like you've got some color back in your face. Um, you, you sound a little bit better. Um, and you just seem like you're, you're doing a lot better. So I know that there was something also around nine months, but for me, the way I felt really internally, um, I think it was really a couple of years before I felt like I could sit down without pacing, without feeling like, you know, I was just going to be completely bombarded with horrible symptoms and really be uh, at peace with myself. And it was very, very slow. And, and even after that two years, it's, you know, it still took a couple more years for some of the other symptoms to subside. So it's been a long process for me. How, um, how is your marriage able to survive this? I mean, I, I'd love, I'd love to hear about, hear about this, um, from, from your perspective. What, what, what made it possible for you guys to get through? Maybe, maybe all the credit will go to your wife. I don't know, but I, I just like to, yeah. I just like to get your perspective on how and how that relationship stayed intact with, 
you being sick and then having all these symptoms and you have obviously a young kid who needs to be get cared for and needs attention and it's so it's so demanding that time in your life you know when with like young children like how did you guys make it through it was, yeah, it was my, my wife's patience that must be how yeah. i don't know yeah. I mean, she's a much more patient and caring person than i am yeah yeah it, it was extremely difficult i mean my my daughter turned four years old when i was in treatment um and i was just telling somebody this the other day i was sure so her birthday is on september 10th and i came off of everything the end of august my, my so daughter's I mean, birthday I, is on september 10th as, as well is it really yeah yeah oh my god yeah. oh that's awesome yeah. no way yeah oh wow yeah. yeah i mean so she her birthday is on the 10th i had come off of everything the end of august so i mean i was just coming out of psychosis i was just coming out of the psych wards when they let me make my first phone call home and that was one of the hardest days of my life never mind the the psychosis that i had just barely survived i mean i remember picking up the phone and and calling and just it, it was wrecked me i mean because uh, at that point i mean i was so damaged i had no idea what was going to happen if i was ever going to even you know feel okay again if i was going to get my mind back i didn't know if this was permanent i mean i was absolutely petrified of everything at that point but um no, to my wife's credit, I mean, she's amazing. And she's, you know, when I first got out of treatment, our marriage was really hanging by a thread. I mean, we had pretty much, you know, had to leave our house due to my addiction. And she moved uh, my daughter into a townhouse uh, and the next town over to get into better schools. While I was in treatment, she was running the household, taking care of my daughter, making sure, you know, she was getting her into, you know, better schools, feeding her, doing everything. And when I got out, you know, it was like, okay, let's, let's see how this happens. You know, she was willing to give me a chance. And she also interestingly said that she could see that something in me had changed. And I, I believe it was definitely as a result of that spiritual experience that I had had in that psych ward. Um, everybody saw it in me and said that I kind of had this glow about me. And she just said, Oh my God, I feel like I have the old Dan back. I feel like you're, you're a different person. And in a lot of ways, I was, you know, there was still a lot of healing and a lot of things that I had to work through for sure. And there always will be, I'm sure, I'm certain of that, but it was a, it was a slow process for sure. Um, like I said, she's incredibly patient, incredibly kind and um, amazing, amazing person. And the fact that it did survive is uh, probably a miracle because I did about everything that I could have done in my addiction and through the benzo damage to, you know, give her every opportunity that she could have possibly used to walk away and she would have been justified. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Um, she sounds incredible as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, hats off to the wives out there, you know, and you know, who, 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 who stand by while this, while this goes on. But, um, you know, Dan, so so the the, the next thing I want to ask you about is I know you, you do coaching now. Tell me about like, like what was like the progression from like mixing paint up to now having your own website and your coaching business, which you launched, walk us through the steps from how you got from there to, to where you are now. Yeah, sure. So, um, after mixing paint, I took some jobs in sales for a few years and, uh, kind of bounced from one to another. Um, up until this past year where I was still doing sales, and I started my YouTube channel about a year ago. So about last August, 2022. 
And I just made a video describing my experience just because I thought, you know what, there's got to be so many other people who have gone through benzo withdrawal, benzo damage and are going through it. Um, what if I just made a video just saying my experience, you know what, screw it. I'll, you know, I don't care what anybody thinks about it. I'm just going to put it out there. And so I did and I uploaded it and I got a pretty big response and just a lot of people started reaching out to me right away and commenting and saying, you know, where they were in the process that they knew somebody who was going through it. Um, and then I started making another video, another video, another video, and it kind of picked up a little bit of uh, momentum from there. And uh, I had a lot more people reaching out to me and eventually people were saying, you know, or asking me, I should say, you know, would you be interested in talking to me or providing coaching? And, uh, at first I'm like, no way I can't, I can't do that because it just didn't feel right to me. I felt like I was, I don't know, you know, I don't want to make money off this. I don't want to take money from people who are suffering. Um, and I was having this conversation with a friend of mine, who's a, a physical coach who does online coaching. And, uh, he said, well, Dan, you know, if, if people are asking you for that, you know, maybe, maybe there's a purpose for it. And if you don't, offer that, maybe you're actually doing people a disservice. So it kind of shifted my mindset around it to where I thought maybe he's right. You know, maybe, maybe this really would help people. So in just April this last year, just a couple months ago, I, I set it up, I put it out there and I just said, Hey, anybody that's interested, you know, um, you can sign up for a call now and let's see how it goes. And man, from the first call, I felt like it was like, it was a calling for me. I, I felt like everything about it felt right. Um, I felt like I was doing something helpful. I felt like I was doing the right thing. And, you know, now, you know, I'm, I'm not doing it full time yet, but I would, I would love to, because it, it feels so right. Everything about it. Um, but it was just kind of a, kind of a, a fluke transition where people were reaching out to me, asking me about it. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have no doubt that you're going to be successful because the, the, you know, the fact that the story starts with people were knocking on my door asking me if I would help them, it means that there's something there already. I mean, there's nothing, there's, there's no better way to start than people coming after you asking for your help, even if you're not even offering it. It's not like you had a sales page up or anything like that. It was just like, yeah. hey, philosophical fishing, tell me about that. Where, where's the name come from? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so when, I, when I first started it, uh, I, I, I initially started on Instagram mm -hmm. and uh, I think it was during the pandemic. I had the idea of coming up with something where I could kind of combine all my passions for philosophy, spirituality, recovery, and fishing, which okay. is another one of my passions. So I'm like, oh, whatever, you know, I'm not really a social media guy. I'll just put this page together. It'll just be for fun, whatever. We'll see what happens. So that's where the name philosophical fishing came from. Uh, and then I just applied that same name to my YouTube channel and I don't know. I felt like, you know, even though I don't, I don't talk about fishing, you know, it can be taken in a different context. Um, so I've just kind of carried over and I'm just stuck with it. Are you, um, you know, what do you, what do you think about, I guess, mental health, the way mental health is treated? This is going really broad now, the way mental health addiction, I get, well, I'm going to say, I'm not going to say addiction. I'm going to say mental health and such is treated in the, in the U S these days. What's your perspective on it? How mental health is treated? Yeah, um, you know, people who have problems with depression and anxiety. Um, yeah. Well, I think it's uh, 
I think it's very clinical. Um, and I think that there's a use for it. I don't think it's completely, uh, to be discounted if, if it helps somebody mm-hmm. by the same token, um, you know, and I can really only speak on my experience is that I've gone down those avenues. I've, I've spoken to a lot of therapists, a lot of counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists, and I think some very well-meaning people who really wanted to help me and who are very qualified. However, by the same token, it, for me personally, and maybe it's me as an addict or maybe it's just me as a human being, I don't feel like anything that was done for me got to the root of what I really needed in order to heal. Holy shit. Okay. What, 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 what did you need to heal? I mean, that's, yeah. I think I needed a spiritual experience in a psych ward. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what I needed. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I think, well, really, I th- no, honestly, I think that um, the things that I have incorporated into my life that I've learned that people have showed me, um, such as simple things, practicing gratitude, humility, helping others, um, living a life of service, and trying to keep those principles forefront in my life helped to heal me spiritually. And I didn't know I needed that. Like I said, I was an agnostic. I, um, I wasn't looking to those qualities as something that could be helpful in my life. Um, so I, you know, it's, it's hard to say because I, I know that, you know, I think, I think the mental health system is, is flawed <laughs> because of the drugs that they push. Obviously that's a huge, huge issue. Um, I think that goes, that goes without saying for sure. I mean, you can't just prescribe somebody something and expect that that's going to be a cure-all for their ills. Maybe there's a place for it in people's lives. I don't know. I, I would definitely never advocate for getting rid of that mm-hmm. for people. Absolutely. Um, but what I've found for me is that I, I needed something in addition to the therapy. I needed something in addition. And what I found was that the spirituality that I've practiced since coming off that has really been the biggest thing that I think has healed me. And the spirituality, I mean, I guess for people who, who may not, that that doesn't resonate with them or something like that. I know like, like how, how much of the spirituality would you say is things just like meaning and purpose and, um, and, and, and things like that, are, are, you know, maybe outside of that greater framework of there being a higher being. I, I don't know if it's possible for you to kind of tease out how much is what. I, th- I think it's everything. I think um, the purpose that I find in helping other addicts mm-hmm. in my recovery community and the purpose that I find um, where I can take a lot of those those same things that I've learned in my recovery community, working with other addicts and alcoholics. Uh, a lot of that translates to the coaching that I now do today. Not all of it for sure, but, but a lot of it and having a purpose of being able to help other people and knowing that I actually, I get to do that today. I, I humbly get to help other people who are where I once was and I get to reach out my hand and try to pull them up and pull them forward and try to show people, Hey, there's, there's another life waiting for you either on the other side of addiction or on the other side of benzo damage. And, you know, I'm saying it from my own experience that I've, I've been through it. 
I've, I've been where you are. I, I get it. And even though all our circumstances are different, I know what it's like to be at rock bottom. I know what it's like to be damaged by benzos. And I know that it's possible to come through the other side. And I think for me personally, having a purpose of getting to do that, being able to do that for other people absolutely enriches my life. I mean, it's those purposes are everything to me today. What, what allowed you to get so, so real with yourself? Because, you know, like you talk about you before, you know, you're just like, I was good at manipulating doctors. You know, I was kind of like lying to myself. I was just, you know, all of these things. And then you see you now, you know, this kind of this radical, like authenticity with like, this is who I was. This is what it was like, you know, just like this full, um, it's like you fully see yourself. What was that transformation like? How did you get from there to where you are now? I think uh, desperation. Okay. You know, being so absolutely desperate. I was just completely wrecked. I mean, everything inside of me was just completely taken away. And I remember being at that psych ward and just thinking, or not at the psych ward, but at the treatment center. And I said to myself, you know, if I ever get out of here and if I'm ever able to get my life back and my health back, I'm going to do everything that I can that I've either A, always been afraid to do, and B, I'm going to do everything I can to try to help other people in whatever capacity that looks like. I don't even know what that is. But out of that desperation sprang the, I, I think, my, my whole life after that. It was a springboard into the rest of my life to really, really want to change. I had to get honest with myself. I had to get real with myself and look at where I was being dishonest, where I was being manipulative and willing to be able to take a look at those things honestly and do an honest self-assessment because I didn't like the person that I was when I was in my addiction. I didn't like the person that I was when I walked into that treatment center. I wanted to be a different person. I wanted to change. I wanted to be the person that I knew was inside of me, but that was just covered up. I just didn't know how to access that person. I didn't know how to get down to it. So I think it, for me, it, it took that, that butt kicking that I got, unfortunately, for me to get that. I'm a hard headed person by nature. I don't easily change. You know, I, I think I know what I know and I stick to that and I don't let anybody talk me out of that. But now having gone through that experience, I, I know that that is what gave me the, the honesty and the humility to, to get honest with myself and to have that life change. Wow. Um, that is so interesting. I really, really, really value your perspective on that because, um, uh, like you said, the honesty and the humility, I mean, it, it shines through now. I mean, it's, it's so real and authentic and just, um, and, and, and yeah, it, you definitely see it. So, um, do you, so in your work at the moment, Dan, do you, like how much of it is like protracted withdrawal? Um, how much of it is helping folks with addiction? Like what, what, what does your practice look like? In my coaching calls? Um, yeah. It's, it's mostly helping people who are where I used to be. Um, mm -hmm. And just, I think, looking for ways to, to try to navigate through benzo damage is, is so hard. You know, the number one thing that everybody says is at the forefront of their mind, their, their main anxiety is, am I ever going to get better? Which was the same thing for me. You know, I, I didn't know, you know, am I going to heal from this? Am I going to be able to get to the other side? And, you know, am I going to be normal again? And what is normal? I don't, 
you know, it's been so long since I felt normal. People don't even know what normal is anymore because they were on benzo so long and how they're damaged by them. And so, uh, you know, people need to see that there's somebody else who's come before them who's been there and can talk the talk. And you see that, okay, here's a living demonstration of somebody who's been through it and has come out the other side and can try to reach back down to somebody else who's suffering and show them, hey, here's what I did. Here, here's here's how I walked through this specific situation that you're dealing with, whatever it is. Um, you know, if somebody has a, a similar um, background uh, of trauma that I had, I can speak to that and I can help walk through that. Here's what I've done and, and here's what I can help show you if you want to try to do the same things that I did. Maybe it'll, it'll work for you too. Uh, or somebody who's just, you know, absolutely ravaged with benzo belly. Um, I can look at specific things that either I had to stay away from dietarily or things that I had to incorporate that helped, um, things that I do to try to navigate stress, anxiety, um, and all these tools that I've incorporated in my life that I believe have helped me get to where I am today, which has been, you know, a long road over the last almost eight years now. Um, if I can take some of those things and show it to somebody else and just continue to be a living demonstration to them that they can also get there, I think that's the best thing that I can do. And hopefully it really gives somebody some, some true hope. Wow. Okay. Um, great. You know, Dan, I'm, I'm about out of questions. Do you have anything that you wanted to say before we wrap? Thank you for what you do, Yosef. Um, yeah. God, I mean, I, I think that, you know, and you can tell me your thoughts on this if you want. I think there's a, a huge, huge wave about to crash in the world of people coming off of benzos. I know here in the U.S., I read that I think in 2020 during the pandemic, there was 30 million prescriptions of benzos written in that year alone, and it's only gone up. So I, I suspect there's a huge wave of people that are about to come off benzos here in the next few years that are really going to need help. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Okay. Well, all right, Dan, thank, thank you so much for coming on and telling us your story. Thanks a lot for having me, Joseph. I really appreciate it. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from doctors Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.